there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. The subject for this particular production is sharks. The word shark is an umbrella term for probably around 500 or so round-bodied fish species, including dogfish and the like, which instead of having a bony skeleton to help give them their shape and body support, have opted for a framework of cartilage instead, as indeed have their close relatives, the skates and the rays. But for today's purposes, we're only going to be looking at proper sharks, those big fearsome predators which on a global scale have to be the best known and most feared inhabitants of the sea. Most red-blooded anglers at some stage in the fishing life must have thought about catching one. And today, I'm with a man who wants to catch them all, certainly in terms of species, and having seen his enthusiasm for them at first hand on a number of occasions over the years, probably every single individual as well. So I'd like to welcome Graham Pullen, who I know has caught some of the biggest sharks in the ocean from a very wide range of species, the best of which have gone to well over a thousand pounds in weight. Quite a taxing lump in anybody's book to struggle with on the end of a fishing line. So why this fascination with big sharks? Uh, sharks, I've always had a bit of a thing for, and I can't get out of my system, I still have. I suppose it's, uh, it's sort of natural for people to be fascinated by sharks. Either you're a shark fisherman or you're not. You know, some people go fishing, they'll catch a shark or two, and they, you know, they just don't like shark fishing. It's, you know, it's sort of tough, hard work. It's messy, you've got to chop up fish to attract them, because obviously they're attracted to stuff like that. But around the world, there's so many different species, uh, you know, you can try and catch. A lot of them are, will be a deep shark, but... You know, I'd say probably the majority are hunting in the upper layers of the water. Anything from tiger sharks, you've got bull sharks, you've got oceanic white tips. Obviously, the great whites receive the greatest publicity purely because they eat people and they're the biggest shark going. But in fact, I think it's the bull shark that does the most damage and, and eats the most people, but it doesn't get the fame and headlines that the great white gets. So you have different species, like a, a bull is extremely aggressive. Perhaps the blue shark's a bit tamer, you know, you can... Uh, you can chum those up and I've actually, you know, just touched them in the water as they swam around the boat. A huge amount, you know, beach fishing, you can go to Namibia or somewhere like that and catch these huge um, bronze whalers, are they, or copper sharks or whatever they are off the, off the, um, off the shore. Uh, that's fantastic fishing. They are actually bronze whalers, though the Namibians and South Africans tend to call them copper sharks. We took 88 there from the beach in six days with an average size of 160 pounds. My personal best turned out to be a 212 pounder on a standard UK shore fishing outfit. There's almost too many different species to uh, to target. There are specifics where you can go and, and try and say, right, I want to catch a tiger shark, and there's areas you would go to say, right, this is a tiger shark spot, and this is a size you're going to expect to catch, and you probably will catch them. Sticking with the bigger fish theme, tell us about your experiences with some of the larger shark species around the world. Uh, I've not had a great white. Everybody always asks, have you ever had a great white? I fished for them once down in, uh, I think it was Hout Bay in South Africa, with a guy that uh, was allegedly the expert. He only gave me half a day, but he's adamant we catch one. We went out and we anchored, to my surprise, about 250 yards off the off the beach with people swimming there. He put some chum over the side, just dead fish he tied on. Uh, we fished a dogfish about five pounds, just float fished under a balloon and sat there and chatted. And, you know, I'm on tenter hooks, absolutely nothing happened so I was very disappointed with him. Couldn't fire him because he gave me a free day's fishing. 
Anyhow, next day I met him again. We were going to do some uh, some albacore fishing and do long distance tuna fishing. We were talking about it, and I said I was you know uh, sort of surprised we didn't get one. He said, "Well, funny enough, the same mark we were anchored up to, almost the same boy twenty yards away." The next day, you know, the following day after I'd been out there, one of the commercial boats that was there had his outboard eaten off the back of the boat, tore it off the mountains, uh, and sunk to the bottom, I think it did. Um, So we were in the right spot, but just the wrong time. I've had a similar experience myself with great whites and outboard engines, though obviously in my case it wasn't eaten off the back of the boat. We had five of them up round the boat off Gansby in South Africa, where we were even able to stroke them in the water and on more than one occasion they came up and mowed the outboard leg, which was a bit disconcerting. I think it has something to do with electrolysis when different metals come into contact with salt water, creating a weak electrical field similar to that given off by prey animals. That was several miles off at the entrance to Shark Alley at Dyer Island, but as you say, they do come extremely close to the shore. If, you, if, you, if you're fishing around the world, you know, I think a lot of people don't realise just how big some sharks do grow and how close to the shore they come. And the turning point for me as far as I've, I've, I've done shark fishing in, say, European waters is when I went abroad well, in, in, in the 70s, really, and I went up to the Florida Keys and fished with a guy out there for tiger sharks. And I caught my first big shark, which was, it turned into a 455-pound bull shark. And those, those days, everything was, was brought in and either sold for fish food or fish meal or lobster pot bait, it was gone. I'll never forget catching this. It took me about an hour, which I'd never spent an hour on a fish in my life, to get it up. And when I got to the side of the boat, uh, you know, the guy took the rod off me. I got out of the fighting chair and looked over the side. I mean, it was a gobsmacker, a great big belly, big jaws. It was, it was, it was big in every uh, every area. If you excuse that sort of tone, <laughs> don't want to don't want to put uh, too much of a tone on things. But it was it was a big boy this one, and that was a turning point. After that, you know, you don't really want to go fishing for a, a forty or fifty pound shark. You realise they were there. And the guy I fished with, Captain Jim Taylor, he used to. He used to um, finish them off rather than batting them over the head. He'd have uh, a 12 gauge with a, like a one ounce deer ball uh, in it and, and shoot them. And, and the deer ball went in very neatly at one side and left a very large hole the other side. Uh, one, one stage I went out and he came out with something like an M16 and uh, a machine gun, the shark, which was <laughs> I found quite entertaining, you know. Uh, but you know, they're bizarre things that, uh, that happen. And he was an excellent shark skipper, no question about that. But uh, I did get some big tiger sharks with him. The biggest one I caught was 517 and a half, which for tiger sharks was huge for me, but not big on a sort of international basis. For these we were using, the baits were just astronomical. If you wanted to catch a, a decent tiger shark, you used to go to a place called the Hump, which is a, an undersea sort of mountain or volcano, uh, 12 miles off the coast of uh, Isla Mirada in the Florida Keys. And each year, year there in March and April, you would get amberjack spawning. Now, the amberjack fishing was absolutely outlandish 30, 40, 50 years ago. I, mean, I can remember catching something like, uh, I think it was 10 fish to 90 pounds in between catching sharks. And I mean, the average fish was probably 60 pounds. The sharks obviously know these fish are spawning there and they're, you know, they're just there in big numbers and big sharks. Yeah, I fish with Jim Taylor too, and what a character. At the start of each day he'd waltz out onto the deck and fire a few shots into the water, in his words, just to clean the barrels through. And as you say, an interesting collection of weaponry. We used to use a live 40 pound amberjack, hooked front and back, and then they'd put cuts in it live, and sent it down so the blood came out slowly and I don't suppose it was down there 20-30 minutes before a big uh, a bull or a hammerhead or something would eat it so sort of a, a quite basic way of fishing but extremely effective 
they've had them to I believe nearly a thousand pounds out there now it's nothing like it used to be because the amberjacks were allowed to be fished commercially and they just absolutely slaughtered the amberjack population so now there's a lot of small amberjacks a few big ones not many a lot of small amberjacks and, and way way less sharks um, if you did want to catch a really big tiger shark two places spring to mind that's off the barrier reef in australia when they go black marlin fishing uh, between september and about january they get regularly 800 to a thousand or more pounds in weight that is um, tiger sharks there uh, but the latest place, which not a lot of people know about it, is uh, off Kenya, where they're catching them downrigging. Very, very big fish there. I mean, I think something like the average is around about 800 pounds. So if you did want to catch a tiger shark, it, 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 genuinely, I think, uh, off the end of the Watamu Banks and some of the canyons they're fishing out off East Africa, that would be the place to go. Uh, the Indian Ocean does, in fact, hold the biggest tiger sharks in the world, uh, certainly over 2,000 pounds, I reckon, they're going now. You know, they're a very, very big shark, not overly aggressive, not like a bull shark, but, you know, they're, they're, they're bulky, they're big, quite good fighters, not the best fighters in the world, of course, that, there's no question that's going to be the Mako. I had an interesting shark encounter experience off the Kenyan coast a few years ago myself. we just released a sailfish, which almost immediately went belly up. So not wanting to waste it, the white skipper of the boat sent the black deckhand over the side to retrieve it before a big shark lurking close by got to it. It was really stressful to watch. I think if that had been me, I'd have told him where to stick his job. On the subject of huge makos, if you recall, one of the trips we were on to Mauritius saw a member of your party bring in one of the biggest mako sharks ever taken on Rodden Line. Yeah, Leo Kennedy was out marlin fishing with us, <clears throat> and uh, they, went, they ran the boat a long way offshore, went out to a good distance, probably 20 miles or more, and came across a shoulder bonito working the surface, so the skipper obviously had a good chance here caught two bonito, towed them around the rest of the shoal, you know, thinking they're going to get a marlin, he gets a take, gets a hook up, and three hours later, they get this massive mako shark up, and uh, try to get in the back of the boat, it tore the uh, stern door off the back, it snapped cleats, it snapped ropes, when we got it in, we dragged it out of the beach, and it, if it had been weighed slightly quicker, I think it would have been a world record, but because you end up in the bar celebrating, the fish didn't get weighed till later, and it then weighed, I think it was 1,014 pounds, and I think still remains a record for the biggest mako shark caught by an Englishman. I mean, a truly impressive fish, no question about that. Yeah, the mako shark are maybe one of my favourite species as well, makos, because they jump as well, they're extremely aggressive, they've got a set of teeth that demand immediate respect when you open their jaws, and they're, and they're worldwide, you know, Indo-Pacific, Atlantic, they're all over the place. Average, if you gave an average weight, I suppose 150 pounds perhaps will be an average mako, you know, there's no real areas you could go and say, I want to catch a big mako as you can with the tiger sharks. They're oceanic wanderers, they can turn up anywhere, anytime. We picked up a couple of very big hammerheads out there doing exactly the same thing well offshore. But what a lot of people don't realise, as with the great whites living close enough to the beaches, is that bull sharks, which as you say are more dangerous, can enter fresh water and even kill people incredible distances inland. Lake Nicaragua, for example and some of the rivers in East Africa where they call them Zambezi sharks. There's even a place in Australia where some that were trapped by the building of a dam are actually breeding and have set up a completely fresh water colony, which they can do because of the way they balance the salt content in their blood, using nitrogenous waste to offset osmotic stress. Yeah, the bull shark seems to have a better tolerance going into saline and brackish water. 
I mean, whether they go up there and spawn or not, I don't know. I did see a program recently whereby they were going somewhere and there was a sort of bay that these things spawned in and, and, and they'd been identified by research officers that that's one of the reasons they go up these freshwater rivers and stuff. Obviously, a lot of the local people get eaten, the indigenous population, and because there's no news rule there, nobody knows they get eaten. Uh, whereas if you have the Great Whites uh, on a surfing beach full of tourism, there's always somebody about that's going to report on it. So that's why I say, although the Great White receives the publicity, probably unduly that it's the biggest uh, man-eater in the world, in fact it's not, it's, it's generally recognised the bull shark is probably the most dangerous one, and it is extremely aggressive. Good fighters, by the way, they're really good scrappers. You know, we've, we've caught them uh, out in shallow water in the Florida Keys to about, say, 150 pounds. But I recently saw a picture of one, I think it was about 670 pounds, which I didn't even know they grow that big, so... There you go, you know, you're looking at a fish that eats people and is easily capable probably of going 700 pounds. Closer to home now, I'd like us to take a look at some of the big name shark species in European waters. I know, for example, that you've done some fishing very close to the shore off the coast of Portugal for makos and blues. Yeah, funnily enough, I went out with a guy called Chris Dorn, who was uh, the then features editor of Angling Times. I used to do a lot of fishing with Chris, a lot of fishing stories. And I, I told him, I said, I think we've got a good chance of getting blue shark on a fly out there. And we took a TV crew out. Uh, or I went out later with them, and we actually did catch blue sharks on a fly, so you can chum them right up, and what you do is you don't put any hooks in the water at all, you know, I, I sort of refined a t technique for getting them, and, and we did do a video on this. You can chum them all up as per normal, hanging a, a sack of mashed fish over the side of the boat, you put a couple of rods out with balloons as per normal, but you just tie on, say, a mackerel or a sardine to about, say, a little link, a 12-pound line, then the fish comes up, he pulls off, you strike it off, it goes obviously cut straight through that 12 pound line and then you do some heavy duty chumming and generally within five minutes they'll come right up the side of the boat and you can cast a fly to them. I did actually have loads of flies you know, tied up to imitate sardines and mackerel and colour and the best fly of all was, well, a chicken feather. It's just a plain white chicken feather tied on the hook. So it was just representation of a piece of chum in the water. They're not the brains of Britain, blue sharks, but, you know, if you chum them up, you can catch them on a fly. Now, we also had mako shark hooked up. We haven't landed one yet, but we've had them sort of... Well, there's a whole different ball game. They're, they're, they're smaller, probably 30 pounds, something like that, but we hooked one about 60, and that was a straight strip-out job. Rods over the side of the boat, real empties, down to the stub, snap, bang, took the lot. They've been caught worldwide now, and there are actually IGFA records listed for a large number of species, you know, blues, makos, I think even hammerheads and stuff, on fly. So it can be done. It's just a, an entertainment thing, something, a sort of sideline you want to do. Sticking with European waters for the moment, I know that the biggest shark you've ever taken, and me for that matter, came from El Hierro in the Canary Islands. For the benefit of those that are not aware that arguably the biggest shark species worldwide also has a worldwide distribution, which theoretically at least, means it could be available to some enterprising UK angler even to give it a go. So tell us how that particular encounter came about. Uh, as far as a uh, big shark in European waters, the first time I went I was aware of the, well I've always been aware of most of the species of shark, but aware of the six-gill shark as being a really, really big shark, uh, was when I was going down to Gibraltar. I had a a trip plan, a couple of stories, a guy invited me down there, he'd started up a charter boat, can't remember his name, and he wanted to try for bluefin tuna down there. So he, he called me up and said, can I come over with my lures and stuff? So I went over and we went trolling around, and within about two days I'd, I'd got him sorted on the bluefin tuna. I think on the second day we went out, we had a triple strike on bluefins, uh, not big fish, 50 pounds I think they were. 
after that, an English skipper went out. I think it was Ted Legg, and I'm really cane him. He's a top skipper, and he got he got it all sorted over there. And I think he must have had six over three hundred or something like that. They were really really good fish. Um, the thing is with Gibraltar, they got seven different currents meeting at the uh, the entrance there, so it's tough to fish. But in my mind, I've been doing this what we call deep dropping over in the Florida Keys for big tigers and, and bulls and hammerheads especially, which go near the feed near the bottom because they feed on stingrays and stuff. Uh, so it was in my mind, so we, I managed to talk the guy into, let's go out and do some night fishing. And we went out night fishing and he had to go to the market and buy, uh, I think it was a Portuguese shark with, with the green eyes, about 10 pounds. That was the only bait we had. We went out and I tied a half a breeze block on to tow it down to the bottom and we fished, I think it was in 200 metres of water inside Gibraltar Bay. And I had two hookups there, and I now realise I should have just left them alone, but I was whining and cranking like a demented idiot, thinking I was setting the hook, but obviously 200 metres away on nylon, there's so much stretch, not much is happening. But anyway, that's my first encounter with them, and then I found out about this place called El Hierro, which is an island, little known island, in the south of the Canary Islands, where a guy specialised in fishing for six gills. We had two trips there, uh, different years, and I don't think, well in fact I know, I've never been out and not I'm not caught at least one a day. Never, we never did two in a day, because it took so long to wind the first one up that uh, you know it was it, it, it was hard work. It was deep dropping. I think we were fishing 550 meters of water or something like that. But unusual, but monster fish. I mean, you're talking fish, or probably I think the average was 600 to 800 on up to well almost untold sizes, 15, 1800, probably 1800 pound. I would think nobody knows the ceiling weight of these fish. As you say, you wouldn't want to be catching two of those things in a day. But when Dave Devine and I were over there, we both wanted to catch. So we extended the charter to ten hours to give us a really good chance, rather than having a fish each on different days. And we had one apiece of around £900 in consecutive drops. We also did some experimental work out in even deeper water, where it was impossible to anchor. Running the boat's engine against the tide to hold position, where I had a small one of around £200. But we neither of us had a grander. Which is a great pity, really, though they do actually look like and in some ways, I suppose, act like a giant dogfish. If you can imagine every dog you've ever caught rolled into one, which comes up like a wheelie bin with the lid open, then you get the picture. Yeah, you, you can't call it sport fishing, it's a means to an end. If you want to go and catch a big fish, there's no question in my mind, this is the species to go for. But it, it's, it's a, a hard slog hauling these fish up. I had one fish on, on, on towards the end of my second trip with my wife and son over there and, and it sort of did my head in to be honest because I'd had several around a thousand and I'd already done one of, of over a thousand on a stand-up outfit which is just a personal thing I wanted to do much like people go fly fishing I suppose I dropped into the same bracket there just wanted to catch one on something different that was sort of verging on uh, pain of the extreme so I didn't want to do it twice I'd done it once that was enough I don't want to do another one but then I hooked this shark and it was just a dead weight from start to finish. The skipper knew it was a really big one. He said it was, no question, it was a big one. It took me, I think it was two hours and about five or two hours and ten minutes, which I'd never been into an area of that before. And I was really, really at the end. I was in my 50s. I was, near, I was at the end of a tether. But we got the fish. I didn't even photograph it. I was so exhausted. We staggered to the side of the boat and it was rolling and thrashing around. It was absolutely immense. And, you know, the skipper, you know, he does a guesstimate on the weights and he figured about 700 kilos, so we're up around 1,500 pounds. And after that, I sort of lost the plot a bit with fishing because I thought, well, there's nowhere to go from here. Fortunately, it didn't last too long. I actually got back into it again. And, yeah, I would go and catch a six-gill again. I mean, I've done it. And obviously, there are other areas in the world where you can now locate these species. 
which, as I mentioned earlier, could include UK waters. A friend of mine, Mickey Duff from Liverpool, fishing aboard his Warrior 175 for common skate, in around 200 feet of water off Kilkee on Ireland's Atlantic coast, had a few six gills up to the side of his boat to maybe £300. Obviously, in such a small boat, they had no other choice but to cut them free. But it shows they are there, and not always in water as deep as you might think, providing there is very deep water close by. Yeah, I mean, I've read about that, and they had that, uh, there's been that £1,000 one, that a Swiss angler caught uh, in the same area. I mean, prior to that, what, 15 years ago or so, uh, a skipper called Nick Dent caught one of uh, 300, again, while common skate fishing in deep water down off Mizzen Head somewhere, I think out of Skibberine. I heard of one other being caught, I think Steve Mills caught one about £90 on a trip southwest Ireland. But uh, what we couldn't understand, this is known as a deep water shark that they say seldom comes into water less than 200 metres. But what I was told by the Irish people why they're getting these sharks now is because they've, they've got a ban on drift netting for salmon. And a lot of these salmon netters before were saying that they had their nets torn by um, sharks. Now they might have thought they were blue or poor beagle sharks, but we're now considering the fact that they might have been attracted, all these salmon hanging in the water, albeit they might have been caught illegally or whatever, who knows, but the nets are out there, they're catching salmon, it's just like a big chum trail hanging there. We're now thinking that the, the, the salmon fishery off the west coast of Ireland is what was drawing the six gills in. I mean, it's only a theory. I wouldn't want to go and buy a salmon and put it down for bait. That's a bit expensive. But I pers- I can't understand why these fish are now coming into shallow water because people have, have scape fished and put baits down off island for years and years and years, the English and European anglers fishing over there. Why haven't they caught these before? Why are these fish suddenly coming through? I mean, that particular mark is a bit unusual off the west coast of Ireland. I understand there's sort of a wall there, and I did look it up on the internet, and it turns out there's a lot of diving goes on there because, you know, the wall that drops away down in the ocean is quite impressive. So why is it this area is the only place that you get the numbers of sit skills? I mean, I think you could probably get them uh, in the southwestern approaches as well, areas where those shark boats go up. Milford Haven is deep off there. That could be good. But, you know, you've got to get out there and put a bait down on the bottom, hard on the bottom, maybe a light stick to attract them, uh, and, and, and drift it d- during the daytime. I, I think we probably don't have to go at night. All the fish we catch off El Hierro were during the daytime. Prior to that, this guy catching them over there in the data, everybody said you must, must fish for six scale at night, they only feed at night. But don't forget, if you're in 500 metres of water, it's pitch black down there anyway. So day and night means nothing to these deep water sharks. So a very real possibility exists to catch these things off the coast of Ireland, the west coast of Scotland, and as you say, maybe even in the western approaches to the English Channel. And amazingly, it could even be a small boat angler who sets this particular hare running. Either way, no one here in the UK has much, if any experience at all, on how to go about a potentially successful attempt. So can we now look at the tackle required, particularly the end tackle, and what you found to be the best approach? Yeah, I mean, when we, when we fish over um, in El Hierro, basically, the guy drops not a huge bait, say a three-pound bonito to the bottom, it's dropped to the bottom, and then just cranked up, I think, about, I guess, 10, 12 feet. That's what it appeared to me on the wrist. So it's just, just off the bottom, not, uh, not way up in the, in the water layers. They're a bottom-feeding species. They're going along the seabed, the ocean floor, eating and clearing up all the clutter and debris and rubbish that other fish have died and sunk to the bottom, and, and I believe that's what their, uh, what, their, what their job is, if you like. As for tackle, well, if you're in deep water, it's not the pulling power of the rod. It's the storage capacity of the reel to get the line. So you probably want 80s like an 80-wide Shimano, something like that. Definitely 
uh, the, the twin sp- I'm not pushing Shimano you know I'm just saying that they do a twin speed reel and that two speed does help get the fish off the bottom easier when you start to get tired it's easier to turn a handle you probably don't need that in British waters or, or Irish waters because you haven't got that huge depth of you know five six hundred meters so I would think something like a, a good 50 wide 50 50 pound line I wouldn't go less than 50 you could even put 80 pound line on a 50 pound reel and still have enough because you know they're not a huge fighting shark they're not going to strip your reel out it's, it's mostly a heavy weight but they, you know they're impressive when you get them up steel traces obviously not necessarily big hooks just a standard 10 offset seamaster i think that's a model 7699 that'll do you uh, make sure the point's clear of the bait you know that it doesn't bury into the bait and don't do too much whining and striking i've made that mistake when i was in gibraltar just let them hook up and pull line off and then just wind on them rather than strike just keep cranking and cranking and cranking until you get the pressure on and maintain the pressure quite what you do at the boat in a small boat is i'm not sure you know a two or three hundred pound fish is manageable but if you start pulling up eight hundred or a thousand pound shark and you're in a 17 footer i'd like to be there with a camera to see what happens i'd like to be there anyway but you know i think it will happen i think i think more small boat anglers will will want to try this but what we need is a weather same old story what about other forms of attraction such as light sticks are these necessary or is it just a throwback to the deep water fishing for swordfish uh no i think they do i think they do actually um attract the fish there's no question of that when I mean, there's they, they've got two you've got the lindgren pitman ones which is, is the company that makes the ones that do not burst and is used by longliners and they just run off a couple of treble a batteries and they strobe they send out a pulsing strobe red and, and green light very small but when we tried it looking at it seeing it in the night i mean you'd see it well 100 yards away tiny little pinpoints of sort of laser type light that comes out so that's a pulsing light which is what the squid do when they're when they're spawning they actually pulsate in color the standard chemical light sticks where you've got a little uh, plastic file and you you snap it and shake it to mix the two chemicals together those are okay up to certain depths but you know when i used them in 200 meters even uh, over in gibraltar i noticed when they came up they burst and you had all this green gunk all over the all over the bait and everything so depending on the depth i say pay 150 meters you could get some chemical light sticks and you don't need the big ones the big six inch ones you can get little tiny inch long two inch ones i think they would do and the general consensus on baits when you're fishing is to put a green one on the bait and a red one further up the trace you know because red and green are the two colors that uh, squids use when they're either feeding or they're spawning red spawning green feeding that's what i've been told anyway I've tried light sticks with some success for common skate at depths down beyond 500 feet, though with my scientific head on now, I would say that we still need more data on that particular one. Getting back to the sharks, and moving even closer to home now, what proper sharks have we got available to us in British waters? Well, we know we've got the six gills there, but not many people even fish for them. The the, the bulk of the shark we get here is the blue shark, which is, um, I suppose it's here from June till September, this last June has been very, very, very well, what would normally happen, let me run you through it, is what would happen is, middle end of June, you'd expect the first blue sharks to be caught down the southwest coast of Cornwall, Devon, that sort of area, and Ireland. They'd be few fish, but they would be big fish, probably 100, 120, that was when a, a lot of big fish used to come in. The bulk of the migration comes in with the smaller fish, which can be 20, 40, 60 pounds, would be july and august and then september and in well into october a lot of people think they go september they don't they're there in october i've caught them is big fish again migrating so it's, it's big fish then small fish then big fish 
a lot of the fish do get caught between July and August, not just because they're in, they're in numbers, but because the people are on holiday, so they tend to go fishing for them a lot. They're going to average, if you said what's an average blue shark in the UK, I'd say 40 pounds. Now, this year, 2010, really, really a, a good blue shark fishing. Nobody knows why. One theory I've been told, and it does make a lot of sense, because of the economic recession and the cost of fuel, the, the, the main predator on the blue shark are the um, uh, European longliners, Spanish, Portuguese, etc., the longline, and unfortunately everything goes, you know, big, small, they're not bothered, it all gets dressed out and sent to market. They now don't find it cost-efficient to run out to the Central Atlantic because they're not catching enough fish for the fuel it costs them. So they're not going so far. So I was told there's a corridor or a window or a lane where these sharks are now passed through, they're not getting fish for, and that's the reason this year, which is, you know, high fuel, a recession, etc., this is why this year is such a good shark year. That's on the blue sharks. Then, of course, you've got the poor eagle shark, which I suppose is the, is the hard-fighting shark of the British Isles, you know, much, much stronger than the, uh, than the blue shark. Now, they're spread over quite a wide area. They're targeted as far afield as way up in Scotland. I mean, the hotspot for them is the Faroe Islands, up, uh, you know, way up. I've had guys lose two or three hundred pounders up on the Shetland right by the boat. They're friends that have gone up there and, uh, and fished up there right off the tip of Scotland. Well, right through the North Sea, they've been catching them off Whitby, I believe now. All around the coast, really. They've had them off the shore off Ireland. A guy called Jack Shine used to catch them off the shore there. Um, I think the biggest he had was about, I think about 135 pounds, something like that. You know, smaller fish as well. Now that's one podcast interview I really would have liked to have done. But unfortunately, Jack Shine is no longer with us. That was off uh, Green Island, I think, off County Clare. Few people have tried. Um, I don't think everybody, anybody has ever, ever caught a poor beagle shark off the shore. He was the only guy that ever did it. Uh, work background, southwest pro- approaches, Devon, Cornwall, they caught them off uh, south coast of Cornwall, and another hotspot area would be down off the Isle of Wight, the back of the Isle of Wight. So they're spread all over. Uh, surface species, again, you can, uh, you know, you can chum for them with standard techniques, exactly the same as blue sharks, but whereas the blue sharks just an open ocean area, the pool beagle, there are sort of slightly specific areas you can go to target them. They're more territorial, I suppose. I think being a cold water shark, I reckon they're possibly here year-round. I fished in Scotland for them in March, which used to be a peak time for the big fish up there. But the big fish in the south, they come in to pup, drop their pups very, very close to shore, down off the uh, North Cornwall coast, and there's some really big fish coming there. The Isle of Wight grounds, I think they have them to about 300 pounds, which, you know, that's, that's, a, bit, that's a big shark. But the average pack fish would be... Possibly 80, I would think 80 would be an average, 80 to 100 would be an average pool beagle in the middle of the season. But you can catch them really sort of year round, but there is a specific time and place to uh, to target the bigger ones, you know. As a point of interest, you and I have done a video on poor beagle shark fishing close to the shore, which is currently available in the video archive of this site. So what do you think it is that attracts them so close to the shore? My understanding is that areas of tidal disturbance around headlands and islands particularly if there is reefy ground, is what they seem to like. Have you any light to shed on that particular theory? Yeah, it is, yeah. You're on the back of the Isle of Wight. What have you got? St Catherine's Point, the Overfalls area. There's tide. You're on the tip of Scotland, what's there? Current and tide. 
uh, North Cornish coast. You're just in the mouth of the Bristol Channel around the area of, of Heartland Point. You know, huge tide raced off Heartland Point. I've only been through it once in a trawler. I'd rather not repeat that one. That was a 50-foot trawler. We were just looking at a wall of water. Uh, so that was uh, quite an experience. We were trying to get round to one of the main Paul Beagle areas. And let's not forget the tide races at either end of Lundy Island, where you and I once spent a week and almost ended up feeding the sharks with ourselves when the boat's battery gave up the ghost, and we had to have Swansea Coast Guard standing by. Another story for another time, perhaps, but plenty of tide seems to be the key. Yeah, they do like uh, a, a tidal flow, there's no question of that. Whether they go up and down with the tide or they actually feed into the tide, nobody really knows, there's not been enough research on them. There's been some tagging and there's been some recaptures, but to be honest, there's very little known. They know more about the blue shark than they do the pool beagle. And of course, don't forget the pool beagle is a prime eating fish. Uh, a lot of the funds that are killed by longliners, and I've heard of huge numbers, you know, I think one guy uh, in Cornwall, a longliner caught, I think it was 122 in a week, and sent them all to the uh, market in France. So, you know, they are an eating fish. I personally never eat them. I've eaten some of the sharks, but I've never eaten pool beagles. I'm quite happy as a sport fish to see them go back. What else can I say about them? They stand the same way you'd rig up for uh, blue sharks, exactly the same. And very similar to the poor beagle is the mako shark. In fact, in the early days of UK shark fishing, the pur were regularly confused. Always rare, a few makos, however, did get caught in the 1970s and early 80s, ironically in many cases by the same boat working out of Falmouth. Now I know you've recently interviewed the skipper concerned, so what little nuggets came out of that particular meeting? Yeah, that, uh, that guy was actually a pair of brothers called Robin and Frank Vinicom, and uh, they were charter skippers and commercial fishermen down in Falmouth Bay, and, you know, 30, 40 years, well, longer than that, 45 years ago, they just seemed to have a regularity of catching make. And these were big fish. These were big fish close to shore. The average fish would have been about 300 pounds. And, you know, I spoke to guys that hooked up and lost 400 pounders jumping just off the Manacles Reef, which is no more than about half a mile offshore of the Manacles Reef, but it drops away to 200 feet very quickly. Why they come in there, I don't know. But this is, again, is it a territorial area they come to? Uh, nobody seems to know but there's been none caught that i know of possibly for 35 years i think there was one 80 pounder caught off kinsale in southern ireland uh, about 15 years ago but you know on the other hand it might i never saw photographs it might have been a pool beagle because 80 is a peculiar weight for a mako they generally every single fish was 300 or bigger so 80 just didn't fit the slot of uh, a mako it might have been mistaken identity and they did get a lot of mistaken identity with pool beagles of of two and three hundred down off the south coast of cornwall you know back in the 60s it's only that the the mako has you know different characteristics but the easy one is the on the pool beagle shark you've got on each tooth what's called a basal cusp so you can't mistake it. it's two little like pimples come up on the base of each teeth the mako doesn't have those one of the reasons suggested why so many mako sharks were caught back in the 1970s was the popularity of shark fishing generally. When you have a lot of baits in the water on a regular basis, plus heaps of rubby-dubby, chances are if there is anything else out there, then your chances of catching it must vastly increase, which no longer seems to be the case. You know what you're saying, they were talking to like 18 boats a day going out just off loo, and they're all chumming, and they're all catching sharks, so I can see that as a theory, <clears throat> but that doesn't tell me But why did the Vinicums were the only ones to catch the, the Mako sharks. He had a specific area between wrecks off Falmouth that he used to fish. I've, you know, I've since done a, a chat with Frank. Frank's still alive. He's uh, what, nearly 87 years old and he's still commercial fishing. 
uh, down there and uh, I had a good chat with him about it. I've seen a lot of photographs that uh, people probably haven't seen before on, on Mako's he caught. There's no question that he had some good fish. But, you know, they don't really know. He said, you've just got to put the time in in those areas. Uh, so maybe they hang around wrecks more, I don't know. So if, if people go out wreck fishing, they rarely, rarely uh, put shark baits out. We've been doing it in Ireland recently, and we've had good success on the blue shark. It's a mixture of sharking and wrecking, so we've nicknamed it Shrekking. And that's what we've been doing, is uh, doing a bit of Shrekking. And I just had an email just a few days ago from Mark Gannon, a, a skipper that uh, runs two boats over in Cormac Sherry, and we joked about doing this Shrekking, and he's done it again. So he calls it Shrekking now. He definitely does it. And every time he goes to a long wreck, he just puts one bag over the side, and he doesn't even put a bait out until he sees a shark. So the guys are fishing away on the wreck, and uh, you know, all of a sudden a shark comes around the boat, out goes the line, they hook it. They had a brilliant day. Now, if all the wreck boats around the south coast of England adapted and did that, it cost them nothing except a bag of mashed fish, then, as, then I think you're going to catch fish like big makos and pool beagles. I mean, I was down in Lou. The actually, the first time I got a qualifying shark, which was a fish over 75 pounds, I got a blue of 76 in 1971, and it was the same year that Joyce Yollop set the world alight with her British record mako shark, which was a staggering 500 pounds. So I was there in the same year as that, and again, that didn't do my head any good either, because I couldn't get mako out of my head. There's one other big British shark that we haven't mentioned yet, and while it's quite a rare species, because it's a cold water shark, if you fish for them in the appropriate areas, you're always going to be in with a shout, and that's the thresher shark. Yeah, thresher sharks, the top shark skipper without a doubt is that man again, Ted Legg from uh, Gosport, who specialised in fishing threshers, and had a, well, uh, I would say a monotonous regularity in catching them. He caught, I think in one season, was about 11 threshers, I think. It might have been more, a lot more than that, I don't, I don't honestly know, but he did catch a lot. I think he used to get most of his fish ironically with no balloon and uh, a small mackerel live bait on a small hook like an 8 because the thresher does have a small mouth and fishing it straight down under the boat on, on straight onto strike drag no drop back no anything that's as I understood it from the guys fishing with him said so that was a, the sort of specialised technique for the thresher but around the back of St Catharines again they like tied threshers a bit like the pool beagle um, they've had them around the Isle of Wight to over 300 pounds about two years ago a guy caught one out there who I did know who I think actually was one of the first guys to catch albacore longfin tuna from the back of the Isle of Wight. And nobody believed him, but I did believe him. He had one of 600 pounds, between five and 600 pounds, and he wouldn't kill it and claim the record. But we, you know, we never saw any photographs of it, but it undoubtedly was a, a huge thresher. Of course, the thresher has been caught in nets down off Brixham, over 600 pounds. So we know it's an immense shark. You know, there's no question it's a big shark. Average size, I guess... Either side of a hundred pounds, nineties to one twenty, one thirty, that sort of size. Good sport shark on on a sort of medium weight, fifty pound tackle, jump out of the water, and they've got that totally distinctive long curved tail, you know, that they use for uh, allegedly beating their bait fish to death. I'm not sure what they do with it, but uh, they they allegedly sort of round up the fish with that tail. I've caught them to about one hundred and fifty out of Mexico on live baits, fish deep, that's called the big eye thresher, which is a, a deep water shark, very tolerant at different temperature ranges, and uh, small fish off the back of the Isle of Wight. So really I'm only left with a Mako shark and I've uh, got the full set for England. But away from the Isle of Wight area, thresher encounters become very much more hit and miss. Uh, yeah, they caught them, um, again, I did I did some research only a couple of weeks ago, down off Lewin, Cornwall, just uh, on their blue shark, and uh, I met the 
the son of Jack Bray. Jack Bray ran the tackle shop in the 50s there and did the mo most publicity for, um, you know, the blue shark fishery for the ordinary man, not for the uh, uh, landed gentry, but for the ordinary man to get involved on shark fishing. And his son Martin just opened up a whole can of worms for me because there was some, there were some really good mako sharks caught down there and threshers. We're talking fish of 250 pounds, um, just called out a loo in amongst, uh, you know, blue sharkers, just potluck fish that I'd never seen before. There was even two mako shark caught in one day from two two loo boats, and they were both around the 300 pound mark. So there's a lot of history in that area for sharking. What was happening down there at that time of year? Late 50s had a pilchard fishery, uh, you know, a canning and, and, and pilchard fishery, and he was telling me they were using like a thousand pounds of pilchards a day. The, the boats were going out with drums and drums of pilchards, so very oily fish, and from day and night there was like a massive shark slick, you know, on, on the go all the time, because during the night, they what, the, what they did was called double boating, the guys would go out with rotten line charter fishing, sharking during the day. They'd be chumming. The boat would come back in, drop the anglers off. A second crew would be put back on. The nets would go on the boat, and they'd go out pilchard netting. So you can imagine all those pilchards being pulled up in nets as well. There was like a permanent massive chum slick off a loo, pretty much like they do the great white shark cage diving down off South Africa. Once you've got a constant smell in the water, those fish are going to come. That's what's missing now. So I think, really, if people went out and used more chum, more rubby-dubby, uh, I don't think they realise how much you really do need to have a good day's fishing. If you do that, then the fish will come. I feel sure they'll come. I don't think they're all fished out, definitely. I don't think they're all gone. Can we now take a closer look at the mechanics of actually going out shark fishing? Things like preparing and using rubby-dubby, making up the end gear, and the use of floats starting with blue sharks, then moving on to poor beagles. Catching blue sharks is not difficult. It's total smell. You know, they use vision a bit, but... Um, you know, they've got a lot of senses along that long snout of theirs, and, you know, there's no question they're homing in on smell. So you want to get yourself, I want to say, a good five-gallon bucket or drum of uh, mashed-up fish. To that you add bran or sand. The sand sinks quicker, but it doesn't absorb as much. But the bran soaked up is, is really good for letting all the little particles. What you want to do is... You want to attract the sharks, but you do not want to feed them too much. Otherwise, you know, you're going to feed them off on a long day chumming. If you're using 50 pounds of chum, and eventually, you can imagine if they eat 50 pounds of chum, they won't want to take your bait. So you want to mash it up fine or mince it up fine. So you take the boat out, let's say an average 10 miles. You stop the boat. It's beam onto the wind, so you're drifting on the wind or against the tide or with the tide. You know, there's a, there's a whole different uh, ball game of of situations you know you can go across the tide into the wind you generally where you're going if you've got a gps plot and stuff now you can work out exactly where you're going years ago you know you, you didn't you'd use land bearings and marks to find out where the drift was going but basically after about an hour you, you should get a shark come to you you're going to use anything from i don't want to go light line i've done the light line I, I, I did catch one blue i think it was a 55 pounds on four pound line i'm not a light line enthusiast i just did it it was the gimmick of the time but so many people break fish off it's it's just a waste of good fishing so i tend to go with 50 pound line all the time now i can put 50 on a 30 pound rod so i get the bend in the rod and i get the sport but the extra line you know 50 pounds you're, you're not going to break 50 pounds lines on the, any anything swimming in the british shark waters i don't think you set the baits out staggered, you know, from the boat. The closest balloon to the boat, you put, say, 20 feet. Then you go back about, say, 30 yards and from the boat, and you put, your, say, your centre balloon out. Uh, you might want to put that 60, 80 feet. 
and then run another one back about 80 yards, 90 yards, and you set that balloon and put the bait about, I would say, it's pretty much what you want, but 90 feet. What you do want is staggered baits. If you put all the baits at the same depth, when that shark comes in on a horizontal plane, he will eat all baits, and I have had and seen sharks that have taken all three baits, and it's no fun at all, it's a huge mess. You know, you, you've got three guys fighting one shark, it's not sport fishing, it's generally a mess, and the shark doesn't, uh, doesn't do too well out of that. There is another reason for placing the baits on the depth stagger, with the shallowest closest to the boat, that being that a chum slick is three-dimensional, with the heaviest particles sinking deepest in the water column as they drift away from the focal point, which in this case is the bag hanging over the side of the boat. It does, yeah, because the, the, the closer to the boat is the shallower is the chum, the further from the boat, the deeper the chum. And, um, um, and if, if the boat's going a, a quartering across the tide, although the balloons are being pulled you know, at 90 degrees to the side of the boat, the actual chum might be going off to the right or the left. So I've done really well myself just strike on the strike rates by climbing on the cabin and I'll look at which way the lines are pulling. Or if you put a line over the side, even when a set of feathers will do you, a light lead, say three ounce lead, two, three, four ounce lead, you'll see which way the boat is truly dragging there because you get the slick on the surface. But, you know, that's governed by the wind. It's, float, it's oil floating on the surface. You say, oh, the shark will come up that slick. No, 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 the oil is, is, is wind directional. It's, it's just an indication that you have got a slick on the surface. The actual lane that the sharks come up would generally be directed by a light set of feathers or a light line just dropped over the side of the boat, and you'll see that it might not go exactly square from the beam of the boat. It might go off to the right, it might go off to the left. So you try and position your floats in there so when the shark comes up towards you, you know, it's there. One thing I will say, and I've done it for years, but I still see people don't do it, the strongest point of smell is obviously the closest to the boat, right by the bags. So what I generally do is put a light 20 or 30 pound rod over, still on 50 pound line mine, just a trace, no weight, no balloon, nothing, free line it, just over the trace depth, which is about, say, 12, 15 feet, and hang it right by the bag. I can't tell you how many sharks I've, I've actually outfished balloons by having takes come on fish to the free line bait right by the boat. And what about the makeup of the actual end tackle? On the, on the terminal, it's, it's pretty basic shark fishing. You thread the line up through the rings, uh, you've got a shark trace, it can be, say, 12 feet long, it's probably enough for blues easily. You can throw a swivel in the middle of it if you want. You can have three feet of wire, four feet of wire at the bottom, you know, say a four-row barrel swivel, and then you can have the remainder, uh, I don't know, six, eight feet of, say, 250-pound rubbing leader, they call it. That's generally what I would use. I don't often use a whole steel trace, but it's, it's to stop fish rolling up the trace and touching the line because their skin's so rough, the hide's rough. I think they're called denticles, they're covered in their skin. It will actually rub and chafe through a fishing line, even 50 pounds if they wrap up in it. So you want them really against a, a rubbing leader. Hook-wise, any 8-0, 10-0, years ago they used 12 There's absolutely no reason for that. You also used to use sea masters, which are incredibly strong. I don't bother with that now, I just use a straight eagle claw, 10-0. Occasionally it might open out as you, if you want to pull a shark in the boat for tagging, because a lot of the fish we tag. Try not to use gaffs on them. If you do, just use a jaw gaff. I mean, you can lift them in and let them go. Some people might think, oh, that's a bit barbaric using a gaff. Well, trust me, I've, I've tagged so many sharks now, I know which ones have survived. I mean, I've had, I've had one out of the water in Portugal, about 70 pounds. We had it out a long time. It was the only fish of the trip, so we photographed it. We put it back, dart tagged it with a National Marine Fisheries Service dart tag. We thought it's a bit of a wasted exercise. It might uh, turn out. 
it's going to be a dead shark. About five, six months later, I had a, a tagging report card come back from the National Marine Fisheries Service. The shark had taken a long line bait. 48 hours later, I think it was, I mean, two days later after we called it, it had gone off and swum a, 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 about 200 miles or something crazy, and uh, you're taking another bait. So, unfortunately, that time we let it go, but the long liner didn't. So I know they're very, very tough sharks. You'd be surprised at uh, how tough they are. Can you explain the attachment of the balloon or float to the line to get the right fishing depth? Uh, tying the balloon to the line, all I use is a, is, is, a, is a light rubber band, half hitch it around the line and then keep adding half hitches and, and pinching them down tight. Then I put a half hitch around the balloon. When it goes away, the rubber band will stretch and it doesn't, it doesn't break. Sometimes they pop off. But you know, when you come in, someone's got to reach out, grab the rubber band, just give it a yank, it snaps the balloon off and the remaining knot of the rubber band goes through the rod rings. You can use cork, some people use, you know, water bottles, but I mean a balloon does it. One thing I would say is, it's a scene thing, it's the jaws scene, you know, when you see the float going away, duh, 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 we've all seen it. Don't blow a big balloon up. You want just enough balloon to support the bait. All it is is to suspend the bait at a predetermined depth. It's not really to look at from 200 yards away, you know, it's visual, but it's, if you have a big balloon, if there's a picky fish and he's not really feeding, it'll bob it down, feel the resistance from the air and the balloon, and he will spit the bait out, I've had it. And again, I've had a very good strike rate as far as converting from takes to fish at the boat by just using a tiny balloon, you know, not much bigger than the size of an orange, just enough to support the bait and keep it there. So that's a good tip worth noting. And speaking of line to attach it to, should people load up with mono or braid? Oh, I don't like braid at all. Uh, braid has its place for bite detection in deep water. I don't like it. I've seen a lot of fish lost, big fish. There's no stretch factor. Uh, for big fish, I really honestly don't like uh, using it. I, I've heard reports of it snapping just for no reason. It's got no shock absorption on it. I use um, just straight 50-pound mono. It might be 40, or obviously we go big sharks, we use an 80 or 130. But I quite like mono. Cheap and cheerful, it does the job, it's worked for like, you know, God knows how many years. Uh, why wouldn't I want to change? It wouldn't be for the better, it would be for a risk as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, bait fish on the bottom is definitely braid has its place. Uh, big fish, no, I don't like using I have had big fish on it, don't get me wrong, of course I have, you know, I've been charter boats, I've, I've used what the skipper's got, and if he's got braid, fine, but I've seen some big fish lost on it, so it's a risk I'm not prepared to take. That's reassuring, because I now fill all my reels with mono these days, unless, as you say, there is an overriding need to switch to braid, and my fishing has been a whole lot more pleasurable and more hassle-free as a result. Right, time to get off the soapbox and back to the job at hand. When fishing for blue sharks, it's important to have a long unbroken trail of rubby-dubby with the bait sitting in it, which offshore in open water is not a difficult thing to do. But closer into shore, over specific small targets for poor beagles, this isn't always possible. So what role does Rubby Dubby have to play where short repeat drifts are required? Yeah, blue sharks are a constant trail, you know, when you, wherever you stop the boat, make sure that you've got enough uh, lee with you, you're not going to, you know, run into anything drift-wise, because you don't want to move it, the, the blue shark will start tracking you at a slow speed, he's hunting slow, he's ambling along, he's got the smell, it's going to take him a while to find the boat, so you don't want to break the drift, because you basically got to start, effectively you're going to start all over again with the drift. The pool beagles are totally different, they're more visual hunters than smell, they've got much, uh, a sort of, they're a much sharper, cuter fish, they're zooming around chasing mackerel, which is their main, uh, their main food, mackerel and pollock, and yeah, down in um, the north coast of Cornwall, where we, where we target the pool beagles, and get some really big fish down there too, I get through quite a lot of chum, 
just to keep the fish, you know, close to the boat. But you, I have heard people, you don't need chum in the water. They say you don't need it at all. I personally was nowhere in the world I'm going fishing and shark fishing without a load of chum. And I get through, I use trout because they have a high oil content in their liver. I wouldn't go with much less than about, on a two-day trip, 80 pounds of trout I normally take. I get it from Abington Trout Fish. You can get it from any fishery, really, that's got uh, a sort of residual or overkiller fish or even indeed fish that have been gutted. Other species you can use is, is mackerel if you can get them. They used to use years ago pilchers, but I mean, I've been out with a guy that's actually hung cans of pilchers in the supermarket. He just used to punch holes in the, uh, in the cans and tie them over the side of the boat. And uh, Portugal, we caught, can- you know, we caught fish on that as well. So, you know, who knows? They, they do go for smell, but um, down off the north coast of Cornwall, if you can get the combination of smell and the area, the visual factor together, fantastic sport. When you're fishing off the north coast of Cornwall, not only are you taking very short repeat drifts, but you're also setting the baits much deeper in what is already quite shallow water, compared to the almost obligatory 40 fathoms fish for the blues. In fact, we even had them picking up tote baits actually on the bottom, and just to redress the balance, tote coming up to take baits suspended on the balloons. Yeah, I mean, I've done quite a lot down there now fishing. I was there in the uh, 60s when we used to go out pool wiggle fishing and, and it was uh, there were more fish then, obviously. Well, we caught like, I think, eight one day. Again, they were all banged on the head and brought in. The skipper sold them, I assume, as part of his... Uh, part of his charter that was the deal the fish belonged to the boat we don't do it now we all tag and release now uh, i suppose a few fish brought in but very very rare a lot of people were uh, probably don't even bother fishing for them I mean, we've been down that north coast of cornwall and i think in 10 years i've seen two boats shark fishing down there it's, it's, it's a wild rugged place down there with a pool beagle i tend to think if you hook one pool beagle you definitely go back to that same spot because they will pack hunt together either inshore for the big ones that come in the spring or slightly further offshore, uh, no more than about a mile or two offshore, you get the um, the packfish of 80 to up to 200. It's rare to get anything over 200 on what we call the offshore grounds. Yeah, depth-wise, uh, having done quite a bit of it now, it's not so much near the bottom. I would say two-thirds down would be my optimum taking area in, in the depth. So, you know, you, you're fishing 100 feet, if, which would be an average for the packfish, well, I obviously still fish that free line bait just under the boat because we've had fish to 200 pounds come up eating around the boat. So you always got to keep one near, the, near and you stagger the other two baits as well. But say, I would think about 80 feet, 80 feet out of 100, you know, that sort of 60 to 80 feet. That would be about the best taking depth. When you get the, the bigger spring fish and there's a totally different package of fish going through then, you run a risk on getting the boat out for the weather. But if you can get out, the fish are truly monstrous then. I don't think other than one 50-pounder, when I used to get the, you know, get the boat out to catch these fish, I should think the average weight would have been easily 300 pounds. We had one monster fish which we were deliberating over bringing in. I was actually standing in the boat with a wire brace and uh, the fish bat in our hands. No question it was a British record. We put the fish, or I put the fish, about 550 pounds. Just an immense one. We got some pictures near the boat of it, but remember, you can't lift 550 pounds out of the water. So it's up to people whether they believe it or not. I just know, having caught eight over a thousand pounds, obviously I'm pretty good at estimating fish. You know, this fish was way over the 500 pound mark. But we didn't kill it. We dart tagged it. So truth will be told, even if it's caught by a longliner, it will probably be even bigger then. So they say, oh, actually, they did catch that shark. So that's the benefit of dart tagging. 
those fish incidentally i'm not about to say exactly where they were caught one we caught was in 40 feet of water no more than a couple of hundred feet off the rocks and one uh, i had there it was about 300 pounder actually broke a 50 pound rod on and we, i fought it with a stump of a rod and it's still bust up i mean they're immense fish down there they're very very strong but they're only there for about a six or eight weeks you know season period another myth we dispelled they're all male fish up to 200 pounds well that's rubbish because we've actually seen a 300 pounder hanging up that's got the male claspers on it and we've caught three 350 pounders with the claspers we've had them by the boat dart tagged them so we know that actually the male fish do grow pretty big now i read recently some of those fish one was tagged i think by dennis froud off the isle of Wight, and was a hundred and something pounds 140 i can't remember the exact weight it's been caught 24 or 26 years later just near near coast of france about 300 i read that recently somewhere so a, a slow growing species that really does need almost a form of protection but unfortunately they are good eating fish so it's a it's a sort of balancing act between sport fishing and uh, commercially actually to some extent that protection is now in place it's illegal throughout the European Union now to bring poor beagle sharks ashore which measure in excess of 210 centimetres, which while it won't stop certain aspects of commercial exploitation, will at least ensure that anglers don't kill big fish just for record claims. Yeah, I mean, they, they should really protect everything as far as I'm concerned, you know, but where do you get the protection limited? I mean, the way to protect fish is don't go fishing at all. So they could ban, say, rod and line fishing and say, well, that's not fair, but hang on, we don't kill the fish now. We put the fish back and we put dart tags in them. So the one set of people that can actually give more research information for are the anglers. If you're commercial in, you've got an oil drum out with a load of hooks on it, the fish is stone dead when you come to, come to pull it in. There's no information research there. The only information you've got is that it's another dead fish and one less in the ocean. So although they've done some protection, they need like a total, I would have thought, a total ban on the commercial side of it. If that encompasses angling, well, what's the problem? Because we don't kill them now anyway. So I'm sort of all for that conservation. As long as they don't stop angling totally, that's, uh, that's fine by me. At various points in this interview, you've mentioned dart tags, and I know that you've been involved in tagging sharks for a very long time at various locations around the world. So what organisations do you work for? What do these tagging schemes aim to achieve? And do you have any particular examples of data feedback from individual fish which makes you feel satisfied with all the efforts that goes into trying to better understand the subject of sharks? I started, uh, again, I suppose it would be mid-70s when uh, we used to use the Central Fisheries Board uh, cattle tags, which was like a clip that used to go in their dorsal fin, and they still indeed use those. Now, the Irish were the uh, the forerunners, the leaders of the tagging. There's no question of that. They were the leaders of it. started in the States, and they picked up on it, uh, and they gradually worked out the, um, the migration patterns of the uh, North Atlantic blue shark population. I have had some recaptures. I've had one monkfish that I tagged over in uh, Tralee Bay, uh, Phoenix. That was called a year later in exactly the same spot in the mussel bed. So whether they actually left, migrated and came back to the same spot, nobody really knows. But that fish was caught and that's a benefit of tagging. It tells you, yes, by not killing the fish and putting it back, another angler's had some sport as well and still put it back with another tagging, you know. So that's that one. I had a blue shark I tagged off the uh, Isles of Scilly. That was caught, I think it was well, two or 3,000 miles away off the... Uh, Venezuelan banks, and that's down by South America. So that a huge travelling distance there. I had a eighty-pound white tip shark I tagged with uh, 
I think it was Gary Lineker when I took him out fishing off Mauritius. Uh, we, we got about, I think, an 80-pound white tip. That one's been recaptured, but the weirdest one of all I've ever had, I went out to the Florida Keys and tagged a bonnethead shark, which is a small miniature hammerhead, uh, shallow water, eight, ten pound fish, not a big fish, you catch them on bonefish tackle. I tagged that in the February of one year on a bonefishing trip. Came home, back to the UK, back to work, and then back in May, I went June, I think it was June, early June, I went out again, uh, same spot, and uh, would you believe it caught the same bonnethead shark so the chances of doing that's got to be pretty remote bearing in mind i'd had a ten thousand mile trip away came back and then caught the shark that i'd originally tagged before of course i've had loads of sharks so i probably had more shark returns from tagging certainly than any other fishing writer and i've uh, probably tagged i can't tell you two three four hundred sharks i guess you know up to well, the big one was about five, five fifty. You know, we won't know till it gets recaptured again. If it gets recaptured, I just hope it's not by a long liner. But unfortunately, the statistics show something like ninety-five percent of all my shark recaptures are by commercial fishermen, and that fish is stone dead. So that's the downside of tagging. You know, it doesn't really help anybody except the commercial fishermen, I guess. And and I, and I do wonder if they're returning tags. Are they really going to tell you where they where, where they caught that fish? The number of tag returns compared to the number of tags inserted has to be very small. Is it possible, in your opinion, then, to get any true measure of meaningful data from such schemes? And if so, can you give us some examples? Yeah, the longest running one is the one I work for now is uh, do jobs for uh, the National Marine Fisheries Services in America. They've been running a dart tagging scheme with a cylinder dart. Um, it's a stainless steel uh, dart that lodges in, you put it below the skin, around the dorsal, or if it's a big shark, it's thrashing around, you put it wherever you can. Um, otherwise you've got no fingers left. Those ones have been going, they've had sharks at liberty for, I think, 27 years. That's the longest shark at liberty. They certainly established migration patterns of various species all over the world, even down to pool regal sharks. Uh, growth rates, they now realise how slow some of the species are to reach maturity, uh, breeding and growth and that sort of thing. It's all good information. Quite why the lack of returns comes in, I don't know. You know, It, it points to the fact that uh, perhaps there is a percentage that do die going back and you know, that we tag and just don't never show up again. Or perhaps there's species of sharks that just aren't targeted commercially, because it's the commercials that actually do return the bulk of the tags. They're the ones that catch them. But if it's surface swimming sharks, say like the blue shark, the multitude of returns obviously comes from them. And I think, why is that? And that's because they're, they're in the sur top surface layers, and that's where the longliners are operating for swordfish and tuna and stuff like that. So I think it's once they start commercial in long line in that depth or they develop a new technique for commercialing at depth then i think we'll see some more tag returns coming in have any of these projects ever considered using radio tags uh, i've not worked with radio tags myself i know they have done on sharks and they use a pop-up satellite tag whereby the the shark has a, a cylinder or transmission unit uh, strapped to its back or on a tag and they last for a certain period of time i don't know two or three months they go down it tells them the depth they they dive at how far they go obviously doesn't tell them what they feed i've heard recently that they've actually strapped a camera to a a, a great white <clears throat> to try and get pictures of you know what their feeding patterns are and, and where they're eating or and who they're eating i suppose you might be able to identify who's gone down the hatch with the whites but there yeah, that information is all transmitted back to uh, satellite and stored in databases and stuff so yes yeah, another means of, uh, of of tracking the fish they've done it with marlin as well and they they call them pop-up tags that uh, they, they they stay on the fish for a set period of time and and generally 
give two temperature changes, uh, what depth they're swimming at, what speed they're swimming at, and where they go to. But they don't, of course, tell them what they're eating. I was listening to a podcast recently where they were talking about radio tagging for basking sharks. It seems that very little was known about the movements and locations over the winter months. But the radio tag showed they gathered up off the coast of Venezuela, which it's presumed now is where they breed. They don't think it has anything to do with feeding, as they've already travelled through many miles of plankton-rich water before they get there. Information, perhaps, which only radio tagging could produce. Anyway, what does the future hold for yourself and for shark fishing generally? Provided I can get the weather to get out, I'll be looking at next spring, I'll be looking at every spring till I end up going out in the wooden overcoat and I can launch boats, is obviously down for these inshore fish because until you actually catch anything over 300 pounds in British waters, I mean you can do it abroad, that's fine, but when you're in British waters it's just an amazing feeling to get this huge bulk of a shark up the side of the boat, you know it's not 100, it's 3, 350, 400 pounds, that really does literally, as I say, float my boat, so I'm going to be doing that big pool beagle shark fishing close to shore definitely weather permitting as far as shark fishing uh, today is concerned i think possibly i think the sharks are always there and my honest gut feeling is it's the number of anglers that are not going shark fishing anymore that is that is the problem it's sort of twofold you got the you got the recession you got the cost of fuel the cost of chartering the boat you know it's quite expensive now to go shark fishing i think that's the drawback not many people want to invest in it the other thing is they just don't use enough enough chum or rubby dubby and you've got to be really not so dedicated going out there doing it properly so as to the future of shark fishing in british waters yeah it's good i mean it's you've got the exciting potential now possibly six skill deep fishing there's going to be some pioneering anglers out there somewhere that want to go out and at least try this and let's face it if if people don't pioneer techniques we're never going to learn anything we're never going to learn where the species are you know like, like the makos you can tie them down and say whether well, in the falmouth area where the poor beagles are on north coast of cornwall scotland off the back of the isle of Wight. if people aren't going to go out and experiment we're never going to learn where these are so i think it's quite hopeful providing there's anglers there and i think it's going to be the small boat anglers not the charter boats they're probably not going to be interested in uh, anything except filling bums on seats, and rightly so. It's their living. They've got to get charters out, and they've got to operate in a difficult economic situation. But the small boat anglers, wider scope, they can come and go when they want. They can choose to stay out all night if they want. They can go where they want, fish deep, shallow, whatever. I think the small boat anglers are going to be the guys. It wouldn't surprise me somebody's going to come with a Mako or a big six gill, and it's going to be in a boat less than 20 feet long. I just thought that I'm not in it when it does. You probably will be filming, Phil. You'll be in there. <laughs> I hope I'm in it. <laughs> well, I reckon probably about 250 is about as big as you'd ever want to get in a small boat. I made a very, very bad mistake in the Florida Keys once. I was out with Frank Gavigan, and we found a spot for real giant nurse sharks. And Frank had one which was the then world record, and it was, well, it was at least 300 pounds. So we switched boats, got him from another boat onto my boat, because the guy on his boat didn't want anything to do with it. So I said, yeah, I'll definitely have a go at this one. And we wanted to get it in the boat, as you do for a photograph. And we got it in one of these Boston whaler boats, a self-drive boat out of Calusa Cove. And uh, we're in about 100 feet of water. Got the shark in the boat, managed to get it up on the bow, two, two of us hauling. And then he slid down in the well again. And we got the photographs, and it took us, I reckon, 15 minutes to get this shark back in the water. But trust me, nurse shark, nurse shark's almost indestructible. Uh, that fish would have been fine. It swam away. So 
I know what the limit is and I'm getting older so the limit's, you know, it's on a sliding scale so what, I'm not bringing any more 300 pounders in the boat. I reckon about 250 we could get in the boat. It's not getting it in the boat, it's getting it back out is a problem. It's like a giant common skate. It's, you know, getting those fish out. Oh man, they take some lifting. I remember a photo of you with two huge lemon sharks in a 19 foot boat. So it can be done because you've done it. Well, we've done it, but we, those, those were a guy that got me out there to, they were getting bussed up by fish, and I went out with a 50 pound tackle, and, and on the first day we got a 300 and a 355, and they were food fish again, they, this is Africa, so they were brought in. But we didn't have to put them back in live. Once they're in the boat, it's fine, it's getting them in is one thing, but lifting them out, I suppose your adrenaline's not going so much, or the age has crept up, that's the problem, getting them back out of the water. And I think that's where, you know, you might have an accident. I mean, we had one poor beagle shark thrashing around once in the boat, that had a tag in it. And it didn't occur to me that it was biting and snapping very close to the fuel line. And one final question on the shark fishing scene. Have you ever caught anything really unusual or on, say, an unusual bait? Yeah, sort of two spring to mind, which were more novelties than anything else. One was uh, fishing with uh, this Captain Jim Taylor aboard the Ace out of, uh, on the hunt for the tiger sharks and uh, off Isla Morada. I'd had about a four-day trip and I was on the sort of last day and the crewman was uh, a bit giggly that morning and I didn't know what it was about. You know, I thought, well, maybe it's the pills or something like that. But anyway, we went out fishing and uh, we had to catch the amberjack for a shark bait first and these were like 40, 50 pound fish. They didn't let me see the bait go over the side of the boat and they dropped it down and then gave me the rod and I dropped it the rest of the way and I said, right, jig it. And as I was jigging it, they were absolutely hysterical and I thought, well, I don't know what's going on here, you know. Uh, hooked a fish up, forwarded to the service. When I got into the service, they were in tears with laughter. What had I called it on? Roadkill. A dead squirrel. They'd mounted a dead squirrel on two hooks, dropped it down, hooked through the head, went out the flappy tail, and I got a big amberjack, 40, 50, 60 pounds. That was one novelty factor, so fish will eat anything, there's no question of that. And the other one was quite an interesting one. I got to doing some research about the tiger sharks off of Mauritius. They weren't offshore. You'd be surprised to learn where these shark, tiger sharks were. They had a, a battery farm for chicken farming. And allegedly, I heard this several times and sort of never really believed it, that the discards, if you like, the dios and the battery farm were just heaved over this cliff and just dumped into the water. Well, I thought no more of it until I read about a guy that was eaten near the chicken factory. And then about two years later, two guys were killed. I think one was a woman and one was a guy killed in the same year, which obviously was well, sort of hushed up, wasn't it? It's not great for tourism. But, uh, no, no, it was factual. There's no question it was factual. Looked into the research a bit more, and it turned out that the family of the man had been killed. He'd been snorkelling for octopus and was towing two octopus behind him. And uh, very, very close to the rocks ashore, he swam in under the... What, what was the lighthouse area, what we call the lighthouse area. Swam in close, and he got eaten by a tiger shark. The family go down with a rope, a chain, and a couple of chickens on the hook. They heave it all out under, one assumes, a balloon or, or, or a float of some sort, and they got a tiger shark, wait for this, 800 pounds off the rocks. So that was it. I had a guy called Jonathan Green, he was a writer, and uh, he was very interested in that story, no doubt as I was. And we did a story for Esquire magazine, I think it was, in the end, and uh, we went out there and I charted this guy that knew about uh, the sharks, and we went out and used a dead chicken for bait. I mean, I really seriously, our fish was anything, this was a seriously rancid dead chicken, half plucked as well, it has to be half plucked, and fish no more than... 100 feet off the cliffs I should think they're really really close in probably 50 feet of water if that put the balloon out and it was an ominously dark night as nice you know with the lighthouse flashing over the top of us just a sort of Jaws theme really 
anyhow the outrigger line twangs away and we get Jonathan in the chair he's never caught a shark before it was a real excitement factor and he battled this shark and uh, we managed to get it away from the rocks and everything and we took it ashore and he weighed 550 pounds so that's a huge shark on a comparatively small bait and since then I went out and caught on other bits of rubbish up by Port Louis Harbour uh, lemon sharks are 350 pounds so if anybody wants a really big shark I think the Port Louis Harbour with all the rubbish that goes in there uh, effluent and stuff like that I think there could be some seriously big sharks up there For my money sharks offer arguably the best chance most regular anglers will ever have of catching not only a big fish but also of cracking the 1000 pound barrier Even more exciting still is the fact that given the right opportunity and some good Atlantic weather it could be done in home waters and maybe even from a small boat so my thanks then to Graham for whetting all our appetites, not only with his accounts of big fish encounters, but for pointing the finger at where we could all have a chance of a similar repeat encounter of our own. Mm-hmm.